Good afternoon, church. Praise the Lord. It's good to see you again as uh, we continue our study of the book of Hebrews. Um, just to say that after this, I'll, I'll take a short break so that we can get an opportunity to get into the Easter series. But after the Easter series, we'll be coming back to the book of Hebrews. We want to complete it and to ensure that all of us have a firm understanding of what it means, uh, of what the writer of the book of Hebrews had in mind when he penned down those amazing words. He wants us to understand the supremacy of Christ, how amazing uh, a savior he is, how amazing a high priest he is, how amazing a leader he is, the son of God, uh, king of kings, lord of lords. And we say the picture here is different uh, from the Christ that we will be celebrating during Easter uh, because the Easter Christ, a lot of us, it isn't meant to be that way, but you have a crucified Messiah suffering and crying out and helpless and weak. This is a different picture. It's a picture of glory and power and control. The King of kings, Lord of lords, uh, the one who comes to save completely, the one who is all sufficient for all our needs for all time. It's a very powerful picture. And the writer does not want us to miss this on the supremacy of Christ, on the sufficiency of Christ, even as we look at other aspects in the coming weeks of the humility of Christ and his incredible sacrifice for us. So last week was an especially uh, challenging time as the author looked at our spiritual pilgrimage and challenged us about our progress in the faith. And he's saying it's not good enough to be stuck where we began. He said we should leave the elementary teachings of Christ. And he calls them elementary. He talks about, you know, um, acts that lead to death. Uh, questions of repentance, uh, questions of baptisms, uh, the laying on of hands, uh, things about judgment, etc. And he called those elementary. And then he gave his uh, resounding warning, saying, hey, you know, uh, if you have tested of who God is, the, his goodness and his generosity and his amazing rich, riches, uh, a taste of heaven, so to speak. And he says, and then if you turn away, and we talked a little bit about what apostasy means, the intentional rebellion, the rejection of the promises of God, and looking at the acts of God and what he has drawn on our behalf, and then almost trashing that. He says, it is impossible for people who have tasted of that, if they turn away, to be brought back to repentance again. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God again and subjecting him to public ridicule. You, you don't want to be guilty. Of that kind of a thing it, it, it's um, it's frightful to think that I can posit myself against God or that I can even mock God and expect to get away with it and we read the, the, the warning God is not mocked if you sow to the flesh then out of that flesh you will reap corruption but if you sow to the spirit then out of the spirit you will reap eternal life and that's where we want to be and we said, don't reject the warnings. The warnings are good for us. The warnings are our, our friends. It means the one who gives the warning wishes as well, does not want us to fall into these problems and, and, and these falls. 
He reinforced it with an agricultural metaphor saying that land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop that is useful for those for whom it is sold, that particular land will receive a blessing from God. But if it produces instead thorns and thistles, then it is in danger of being cursed and in the end it will be burnt. Obviously, this is based on historical fact. He will draw from the experience of the exodus of the Israelites and say, this is not theory. This could happen. Not just could happen. This actually happened to real people. Thousands and thousands, actually millions of them, who set out in the great exodus, but never made it to the land of promise. Why? Because again and again, they kept rejecting and trivializing the promises and the goodness of God. And so, they never crossed the Jordan. They never saw the promises of God. They never entered into God's rest. So the warnings are for us uh, who live in better times, who have better promises, who have a greater Messiah, a better high priest, and saying, how will you escape if you reject so great a salvation? In verse 9, he encourages the saints, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case from verse 9. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust, that great promise. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him, how do you show your love for God? As you help his people. Because God doesn't need your help. Did you know that? You need his help. I need his help. He doesn't need my help. So how do I love God? By helping his people. And God is saying, you do that, I will credit it to you. That you have loved me. Because you have loved my brothers and my sisters. Those who are in need those who needed help, you became my arms, you became my hands and my feet. And with the resources I blessed you, you blessed my people. God says, I will not forget you. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to do so. He's not interested in a one-off, you know, generous gift that then you, you know, assuages your guilt, then you move on to your own selfish needs. No. He's saying as you help his people and continue to do so. There is a discipline that God wants to inculcate in his people so that as we observe you over time, not only do we see your progress in the faith, but you see your consistent growth. That at one time you were taking milk, now you're into semi-solid food, eventually you're into real hard food, and you know, you are growing. That's what God wants to see. So it's not enough that we do something just to assuage our guilt, because, oh, you know, I haven't given for a long time, today I must give, I feel guilty, the pastor preached. That's not growth. That's guilt, and that doesn't benefit you. God wants a consistent pattern where... Um, you're growing and, and advancing in the things of God through different and changing seasons. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to, to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope secure or sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit 
what has been promised. And today is about the promises of God. And, and, and God does have promises. And, and when you promise something, it's because God wants to create not just a hope, but an aspiration, an end goal to this. He's telling us this is going somewhere. Our relationship is headed somewhere, and this somewhere is good. Let me give you some promises about what will happen to you in the end. And then because of that, then you and I are inspired to know that, hey, this is not just, you know, a ritual uh, that we are enacting. Uh, showing up here on a Sunday is not just something that we do because it's Sunday. No, this is going somewhere. We are people on a pilgrimage. We are people on a mission. And this mission has an end goal to it. And that end goal is powerful. It's beautiful. It will end up for my benefit. In other words, God knows our basic human nature. For me to be encouraged along the way, I want to be able to answer that little selfish question, what is in it for me? And God says, you want to know? This is what is in it for you. Eternity, glory, rest, my presence, wealth beyond your wildest imagination, the streets of gold. And he says, this is real. And it's me promising you. So, it's going somewhere. So he gives promises. When God, in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So, so the, 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 the whole idea, uh, this is coming from Old Testament, obviously, um, and God had instructed his people that you will take your oaths in my name. What does an oath do? The author will tell us what an oath do. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. In other words, because men are fallen, and so are women, you know, uh, what they do, you know, I, I, I tell Priska, Priska, Akinta Kurdisha Dozako. You know, then Priska is looking at me, yeah, right, like you returned the last ones. So I, I, I want to tell her, you know, Aki, Aki Amungu, you swear by someone greater than yourselves. That was put a stop by Christ, eh? Because it was based on the fact that my word is not reliable. And therefore, I have to confirm it with an oath of one who is greater than me so that she can know for sure I will return her money. All right? When Christ came, he says, this is not the way that you should live. All right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Therefore, be trustworthy. Let be a man, a woman of your word. Let your word be your bond. If you said it, make sure that you perform it. If you promised, make sure that you deliver and you accomplish. That's how life was meant to be, all right? But, 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 but that's, not, that's ideal. But because people have fallen, therefore, in the past they had to swear an oath. And an oath then elevated your promise to a level that is higher than you. You held yourself into accountability with God. Therefore, if I don't perform my promise, then let the wrath of God come upon me. That's what it meant. So, using human categories... God lowers himself to speak in our language that we can understand, okay? 
when we impute um, human categories to God, it's, it's, it's in, in difficult English, it's called an anthropomorphism, okay? It's, anthropos is man, and, and, and the whole morphism is a morphism, okay? <laughs> okay? So you're trying to understand God from a human category. Because there's no one higher for God to swear by, he swears by himself. Number one, God doesn't have to take an oath. Because if God says it, he will perform it. He is God. You know, and, 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 and because of the nature of God, there's a word we call logos, the creative power of the word of God. Let there be light. Light never existed, and there was light. It's based upon the power of the spoken word by the creator God himself. All right? And, and so whatever he says, that's what happens. So God doesn't have to swear an oath for that to, 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 to come to pass. But because he wanted us to be sure, absolutely sure that his promises are yea and amen. In other words, they have no choice but to come to pass. The song we sang, Nikama mvua inavyonyesha, yeah? Toka binguni, haji kwenye ardhi. So is his word, all right? The word of God never returns to him empty, the Bible says, but it must accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. There is no choice. All right? And, and, and once the word of God goes forth, then it performs what it was meant to be. So this God is trying to say to us, the promises are real. They are so real that I'm willing to stake my character and my name on this promise. It will come to pass, even though I cannot lie. But I want you to be so sure so that your confidence in me and my promises is absolutely solid. So this is what he says. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what he said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose. So you can't change this. If you said he's going to bless you, you're not going to be able, no one and nothing can change this. All right? But he wanted to make um, the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what is promised. We are the heirs. All right? Of what was promised. And, and, and the beginning of Hebrews, if you remember, um, I can't get it right now. But, but because of what Christ did and his achievement, um, he, he makes us core heirs of God and the promises of God. And so because he wanted us to be so sure, um, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie. His word and his oath in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. In other words, God has gone out of his way to do what is not even natural to him because his word should be enough. But he knows us and our doubts. He says, I will swear by myself. And when I do, you know that you know that you know what I have said will come to pass. My promises for you are completely solid, completely unchangeable. Because I've not only staked my name, I've staked my character, 
and my word on this. It will happen. A quick um, flashback, because it does allude to Abraham. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. We know this happened because of the Isaac story. And the Isaac story was a, as a difficult story. He receives a word from God. He is 75 years old. And at that time, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, don't be discouraged. I am your great reward. And Abraham is like, God, what shall you give me? Seeing that you have given me no heir, I have no son. And this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, will inherit my estate. God says, uh-uh, that's not what's going to happen. You know what, Abraham? Your own seed coming from your own body will be the heir to the promises that I have given you. Go out into the night. Look up at the sky. Can you count those stars? That's your descendants. That's how your descendants will be. The, the, the Bible says this. Abraham believed God at that point, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Today he's called the father of faith because when it was impossible for him to, to believe, he actually trusted God, that God is able to do this, and God credited it to him. And then the Bible says that, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. We know that Abraham came, I mean Isaac did come at one point. After waiting, patiently. How long did it take between the promise and the fulfillment? 25. So next time you're tempted to say that God has failed in his promises, just know that he is operating on a slightly different schedule from yours. Like 25 years? <laughs> so you can't intercede in the morning and some of us are so impatient. Lord, you know, I prayed, you know, for this issue at breakfast. Now it's 12 noon. And Bado Jatimiza. And you see, patience is a function of faith. I trust you, God. You know what you're doing. If you've delayed this thing, there's a good reason. But I will wait. Because it came from you, I know that you will perform what you promised. And you settle. And you go on with your business. Because God has said it, and it is impossible for God to lie. And so you give God his time until he does that. Interesting. He doesn't even bring up the Ishmael issue here. He doesn't condemn him for the Hagar fiasco. Because somewhere in between the 25 years, we know Sarah said, hey, look, Abraham, I know what God said and everything, but guess what? This thing is, doesn't look like it's happening. You, here's Hagar. Go get a baby with Hagar because I, I need a child. And, and, and Ishmael happened. But he, does, he still doesn't blame him for it. In other words, God gives his real promises to real people who are frail, who are going to be anxious. Sometimes they'll detour and do their own things. But because it's impossible for God to lie, what he promised will still come to, to pass. Ishmael or no Ishmael. Ultimately, Ishmael will bring pain into the situation. Because at one point, he has to be sent away together with Hagar. 
Because he was not the son of promise. This is the son of Abraham's plan B. And God is like, ah, ah, this is the one I promised you. So he's the inheritor of the promises. And because of what I told you, my promises to you will be reckoned through Isaac, not Ishmael. So it's okay. Send him away. And Abraham is torn because this is his son. And it takes God to come and just do some damage control. He says, Abraham, it's fine. Let her go. I'll take care of her. And I'll take care of him. Even Ishmael also will be a nation. You follow the story of Israel? Surprise, surprise. He, become, he becomes the father of 12 rulers. Just like Jacob will become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. God says, I'll take care of him. Okay? That was your own planning, your plan B, but I'll handle it. I'll cover you, and I'll cover your damage. So, God's promises. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And it was not to be the end of the testings. God has given Abraham the promise, but guess what? That promise will be tested. Do you really trust me? And, 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 and the oath and the swearing of God, um, because it's alluded to here, Let's look at um, Genesis 22. Let me read for you what happens in that scenery, uh, scenario where, where God is going to swear an oath by himself. A very rare thing. In chapter 22 of the book of Genesis, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, when somebody begins a sentence like that, unajua siyo kuzuri. Your son, your only son, whom you love, is going to be a severe test. All right? And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. There was a lot of prefiguration of what was going to happen in the days of Christ, even in that statement. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? If you read 2 Chronicles chapter 3, it says, And Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah. That's where the temple of Jerusalem stands. The very spot where Abraham was sacrificing, was going to sacrifice Isaac. It was a prefiguration of the things that would happen in the future, the days of Christ. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took him with, uh, with him, two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in, a, in, a, in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We shall worship and then we'll come back to you. Again, an interesting understanding of the sacrifice that Abraham had been asked to do for God. He said, we shall worship. He understood the giving back of the son that he had received from God as an act of worship. Ultimately, true giving is an act of worship. And when God says, for he loves a cheerful giver, he doesn't want you worshiping him begrudgingly. That's why he says, let each person give what they have determined in their heart to give. Because if you give begrudgingly, that is not acceptable to a holy God. 
ultimately, every giving is an act of worship. When Jesus gave up his life for us, it was the ultimate act of worship, of trusting God. So then, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. The story gives back the human face of this historical event. Sometimes we speak about it almost like it's a mythical thing. But this is a father and a son, and they are walking together. The father knows what he has been asked to do, the impossible, and the son has no clue. And it's amazing what, what the son asks. I can see the fire, I can see the wood. Where is the lamb? So they had had a conversation. We're going to sacrifice to God. So where is the lamb? And Abraham, not knowing that he was prophesying, he says, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb of sacrifice. How does he tell his son that you are that lamb? But he tells him the Lord will provide. And so they proceed quietly up the mountain. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I think at this time the boy is starting to figure out, I probably is the lamb. I'm the, I'm the lamb. It's a very uneasy situation, you know? And, and, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He was going to do this. And you see, by the time that Abraham is doing this, he has no clue what kind of a God he's serving. He's, trying to, he's discovering God. He's obeying God. The gods from the areas where he had come from, including where he had come from in, in, in the lands of Mesopotamia, the deities there demanded human sacrifice. So at this point, he doesn't know that Jehovah doesn't require human sacrifice. He doesn't know that this is a test. He actually thinks, okay, God gave me the son. He's asking for him back. I'll give him back as a sacrifice. And that's what makes this act so remarkable. And then it becomes the foundation of the faith and the promises that we, the Gentiles, will become beneficiaries of because of the act of Abraham. Because when it was impossible to obey God, he still did. And this is what he does. Then he reached his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now, I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The foundations for the benefits that we reach and and, 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 and that we benefit from, from the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the closest human foundation that we have, that a father who is too elderly to even give birth to a son, miraculously is enabled. Then he takes a son, an only son, and sacrifices him back to God. And on the basis of that act, then Abraham becomes a prefiguration of who God is. And what God can do. Because God will take his son, whom he loves, his only son, and sacrifice him 
for all of us. And it's amazing that Abraham is able to do this. No wonder God changes his, his, his standing before humanity. And we read somewhere that Abraham was called the friend of God. They become buddies. It's like you get me, Abraham. This is what I'm going to do. And you did not withhold your son, whom you love, your only son. You're willing to give him to me. It's almost like God saying, you know what? This is what I'll do for you. This is what I'll do for you. And so the foundations of the promises of Israel will be based on Abraham. He will become the real father of Israel. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught up by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, the substitutionary death. The son was meant to die, but instead of the son, God offered the ram. And so the ram dies in place of Isaac. So later on, God will give Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist will see and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But this time it's not a ram that will die. Jesus will die in our place. Instead of us dying, he dies. The substitutionary atonement and God's anger is removed. It's a powerful prefiguration. And here Abraham, because this is even before the, 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 the Abraham... The, um, this is during the Abrahamic covenant, but it is before the giving of the law. Okay, the sacrificial system has not even been set in place. And so in a sense, the ram itself is caught at a distance, okay, on its horns. Because Christ hasn't come. So there's going to be some time lapse between Abraham and Jesus Christ. And so it's a prefiguration of the things that would happen in the distant past. I mean, in the distant uh, future during Abraham's time. Because Jesus will eventually come and pay the ultimate price. So in that act alone, so much is spoken of God's promises. Abraham looked up, okay, and then, so Abraham called, the, sorry, let me, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught up in his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations, that's what includes the Gentiles. All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Incredible blessings. Just out of one act of obedience of a man who lived thousands of years ago. Today we are beneficiaries of the promises and the covenants of God. Even though we were not part of the family. And now we've been included because... Abraham obeyed. So that's, that's where the writer of Hebrews is coming from. That when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And today we know Israel exists because of this promise. 
they will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And today, Israel is still, militarily speaking, unbeatable. Because God promised, therefore God continues to perform his promises. And he swore it on oath, on two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And so the metaphor again here is being given. It's a shipping metaphor which they were very familiar with. And when a ship wants to take anchor, it drops, I mean, it, to anchor, it drops the anchor. It sinks into the seabed. And that sea, that, that ship, even though it's buffeted by the waves and the winds, it is steadfast. You will find it where you, you left it. And so he gives this imagery. And he says, we have this hope. Uh, that is secured by an anchor, and not an anchor that goes to the sea, but goes to the heavenly places, beyond the curtain, beyond the sanctuary, into the inner place, the most holy place, where Jesus himself has gone before us and holds your soul fast. Just the same way that an anchor holds a whole ship, Jesus is the one who's holding your soul fast. That it doesn't matter what happens to you on the outside, what Satan does, what circumstances do, etc. Jesus is holding you fast. And there's nothing anyone can do to dislodge that soul. Because the one who holds it is powerful, is king of kings, is lord of lords. The entire world holds together by the power of his word. So no one can snatch you away from God. And he's saying, I am doing, he says this to give you great encouragement. That the hopes that God has given you, the promises of God for your life, will not, cannot fail. Because the power of God is immense. And the guarantee of God is even given by an oath that it shall come to pass. How confident ought you to be of God's promises? How confident ought you to be of God's promises? If Jesus himself, who is behind the inner sanctuary, in the presence of God himself, is holding your soul steadfast and sure as the billows roll. On the other side, how tragic it is. If God has gone to that extent to secure your soul and you walk afraid, glancing behind every bush, wondering what Satan will do to you, completely unsure of yourself. And here, Jesus is saying, hey, come on, go do my work, help my people, live your life. I, I got you, you know. I'm holding you fast and secure. Read your promises, I've given them in my word. See how sure you should be of yourself. How tragic it is when we don't even know what those promises are. And you cannot claim what you do not know. And God has written in great detail this love letter to his children whom he loves. And he says, don't worry. There's an enemy out there. I have him on a leash. There's nothing he can do to you. 
No temptation has, 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 has come upon you that is not common to man. God, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can endure. And with every temptation, guess what? I have made a way out so that you may be able to stand under it. So when Christians despair and go into depression because this and that and the other has happened because there's no hope, God says, what are you talking about that there's no hope? I am your hope. I, hold, I have you secure. I have you steadfast. I'm sending you help. I'm sending you help. Hang in there. I have sworn by my name. I have taken an oath that I will not let you down. How can you despair? How can you give up? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Not on his own behalf, on our behalf. Paul will speak in, in other places and says, in Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, we have been included for the sake of you Gentiles. All right? Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that has given, was given me for you. That is the mystery made known to, to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So we say there was a mystery before in the past, but guess what? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. We are part of the family. Members together of one body and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So the promise that was for the, for the Israelites is now ours through Christ Jesus. And he says, this is, this is my calling. I'm to declare to you guys, don't be afraid. All the promises of Israel are now yours. You've been incorporated. It helps to know what those promises are. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the, the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ Jesus and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Why? His intent was that now through the church, there was no church in the days of Abraham, but now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Even Satan knows that there's nothing he can do to us. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. So when the enemy says that you are unacceptable to God, that what you've done is unforgivable and you believe him and you go there and cringe in a corner and you mourn for yourself and feel sorry. He's saying, what are you doing? Read my promises. My son has paid the price for you. You can approach me with faith and with confidence and I will hear you. I have no choice. The blood of my son is on you. Come and receive grace. Come and receive mercy to help you in your time of need. 
I ask you therefore not to be discouraged. Paul is very confident. Because he's going through persecution, he says that's not a problem. Approach God with faith. Approach God with confidence. Because Jesus has paid the price for your redemption. As we finish, I want to challenge you about these great promises of God that he has recorded for us. Do you know them? Can you claim any for yourself? What has God said? You know what, what, what um, the apostle Peter says about this in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us everything. So there's nothing else we are waiting to receive. Okay? Through his divine power. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Then in verse 4, through this, he has given us his great and precious promises. Do you know them? His very great and precious promises. What are those promises? They are great and they are precious. Do you know them? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Through the great and precious promises, you are able to participate in the divine nature. What a privilege, what an honor that mortal beings can participate in the divine nature. You can have a taste of God in this life. So you don't have to wait for the future. There are things that God has already stored there and he said, you can participate with me in the divine nature. And he will so fill you with his spirit, which he promises to do, so that your heart, your mind, is bent towards the things that please God instead of what corrupts the, 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 the human nature. And that everything is in you is, reno, is resonating with godliness. And you're pursuing godliness. What are those promises? I challenge you to find out. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measures, there must be progress, there must be growth, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is possible to be a believer by name, but you are unproductive and you are ineffective. But if you add the spiritual disciplines that have been enumerated here by Peter, then he says your progress will be very clear and you will be productive and effective for Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers... Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. That's a promise. If you do these things, you will never fall. So you don't have to live in fear. Will I hack it? Can I make it? It's not your business. God says there are things that you can do in order to make your progress and your calling secure. And if you do that, you will never fall. That's an amazing promise if you ask me. 
For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you like to receive a rich welcome? Have you been in a family gathering lately? And then you're saying, Auntie Susan has come. Oh, she is here. That's not a good welcome. Uncle Sam is here. Whoa, you came. <laughs> you know. A rich welcome. You don't want to receive a lukewarm welcome. Yeah, you made it. You know, welcome. But most of the time, you know, your testimony is scattered all over the place. You want to receive a good welcome when you go to a place. You're here. Thank you. We were waiting for you. Welcome into the kingdom of your father. That's the kind of welcome that you want to receive. And Paul, as we close, is going to say a prayer which we call a benediction because he wants this. He himself, he has this for himself. He's saying, you know, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he's so sure. He says, and now there awaits me the crown of life, which the Lord Jesus himself will give to me. And not just to me, but to all those who are awaiting his salvation. He's so sure. But now he wants to intercede for us. And, 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 and in the immediate Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14, he says, for this reason, for the reason that you may acquire the truth, that you may know the promises that God has given you, that you may be secure in your place in Christ Jesus. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, it's part of the promises, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Most of us have not experienced that love. It's mind-boggling. It makes everything else fade away in terms of what you think is attractive or good or nice. You know, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. How does it feel like to be full of God? We read this of the saints of old, but this is possible for anybody, any of us. That's the invitation. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. You know how great our imagination is. Now, the Bible says through these promises, God is able to do more than you can ever ask or even imagine. Most of us don't even experience a hint of God's generosity, God's goodness, God's availability. But the Bible, which is impossible for God to lie, promises that, that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. 
If you're a believer, he has given you his Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Bible promises that, that that Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So it's not limited. If it can resurrect the dead, then it can provide for your food. It can give you rent. It can give you a job, surely. It raises the dead back to life. That's how come Jesus is alive today. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, and I hope in your life, in your family, throughout all generations, is not limited to us. This power can go to your children and your children's children. Forever and ever. Amen. That's the prayer. I want to invite the worship team and we are going to, to, to again remind ourselves that the power of God and the power of his name and the power of his word, as it comes to us, as we let that, that word get into every soul and every heart that believes in him, it will accomplish the power and the purpose for which it was sent. It's not an idle word. Please raise.